We're currently, as a congregation, going through a sermon series in the book of Titus, taking one passage at a time, trying to examine and see what is it and how is it that sound godliness, I mean, sound doctrine leads to godliness. This is a theme of the whole book. If we were to summarize this book in, in five words, it would be this, sound doctrine leads to godliness. And we as a church uh, want to be about that. But a particular part and importance of, of how we become that is that we think carefully of who are those called to lead us. So this morning we want to look at qualifications for elders. Let's read God's Word this morning for our hearts. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God's blessing over the word? Father, you have been with us in our gathering already this morning. We praise you for your spirit who is here. As we approach the proclamation of your word, as we hear the preaching of your word, we confess that we are dependent upon you to speak to us, to make this truth clear, and to apply it to our hearts. We pray that you would do so for the glorification of, of your Son's name, for in his name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, last week we looked at the importance of elders in the life of the church. Their importance is seen in the following way from this passage that we read last week. A plurality of elders provides order in the life of the church. Paul seems to be very interested that in the church or in the churches of Crete, uh, Titus was left behind to ensure that he would put in order whatever remained lacking. And that lacking, what remained undone yet at that time, was the installation, the appointing of elders. So a plurality of elders provides order in the life of the church. Notice it's not the plurality of deacons or a plurality of committees or a plurality of some other council or a plurality of trustees. The order in the life of the church, according to Paul, was to be carried out by installing and appointing elders for the church, for the churches. A second way we see the importance of elders is that they are called overseers and God's stewards. They are called to oversee the life of the church and to be God's stewards over the church. And because of those titles, because of those images given to them, they have a high responsibility and they will give an account not to the church, they will give an account to God. A third reason we saw why uh, elders are important in the life of the church is because a plurality of elders are to be appointed 
for this task. It's not enough simply that we have members who act like elders without the title. Now, it's wonderful to have that. It's wonderful to have that. But it's not enough. To have order in the life of the church, those whom God calls to serve as elders um, and those who act and live as elders already are to be publicly appointed and affirmed to this responsibility. Now, you might ask, why is it helpful? Why would it be helpful to appoint them? Well, such appointment is helpful, first of all, for the members of the church. The members need to know who are the shepherds that God has called for the leadership and protection of the flock. Elders are shepherds. It's not just that the, the pastor, the paid pastor, or the senior pastor is a shepherd. It's that the elders are the shepherds of the flock. And members need to know clearly who are the men whom God has entrusted with the stewardship so they can follow their example and their teaching and their guidance. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, uh, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Well, who are these? Notice Paul doesn't simply say the one who, in a singular, there's more. There's a plurality. Who are they? The members of the church ought to know. It's clear. It would, it would help the members to know who is it that God has put over the congregation to lead the congregation and protect the congregation. So it's helpful for the members. It's also helpful for the elders themselves. Uh, so they can know that when they act like elders, they also hold a stewardship for which they will give an account. The appointing of elders also communicates to them the approval and the blessing of the whole congregation to follow them as their spiritual leaders. So appointing is helpful. But this morning, as we look forward to the passage, we want to ask the following question. Who should we appoint? How do we select them? If elders, a plurality of elders, is significant for the life of the congregation, who are they to be? And this morning, I would like for us to look at the first half or the first part of these qualifications and consider how we are to, to, to examine and choose and appoint these elders. So this morning, we want to look at a few points, four points, um, of how to think about the qualifications. And if you like to take notes, here's the first point we encourage you to consider this morning as we look at these qualifications. God determines the qualifications for elders. God determines the qualifications for elders. Now, you might think this point should be so understood, it's not even worth making a main point in the sermon. Well, friends, sadly, churches can easily fall in the trap of choosing men for church leadership who have only human-based qualifications. Qualifications that we put in place while we ignore the qualifications that God has given for this role. Our view of who should be leaders of the church must be determined by Scripture, not by our tradition, not by what we like, not by our experience in life, but by the Word of God. God has spoken to us about the qualifications for this role. Now, just to be clear, 
I want to make sure we identify some man-centered qualifications that we can be easily lured by. We might be inclined to choose leaders for the church um, in the following manner. We might choose them just because we like them. We might choose them because we're friends with them. We might choose them because we trust them. Now, let me, let me pause here for a second. I hope that uh, the leaders a church or members would choose for them would meet each of these things. Each of these things are not bad. I hope a church can trust its leaders. Otherwise, they should not put them there. But friends, let me, let me also be clear that sometimes we might be able to trust people who actually don't meet the qualifications for that role. We may like people who actually don't fit that category for church leadership. That doesn't mean that they are less likable. It just means that they, as much as we might like them or trust them, they don't meet the qualifications that God has for this role. Uh, we, we might choose people for leadership because they are available to serve. Especially if someone has served us, we feel like they love us, they care for us, so we think that they must be qualified as elders. But let me ask you, what if, what if they live in an unrepentant sin and we don't even know about it? They may be very nice people, but in their private lives, they might have a rebellious attitude towards God. Or they might be drawn more by the wisdom of this world than by the wisdom of the Word of God in how they lead and care and guide the church. Sometimes churches can choose men in leadership because of how much a person has done for the church in terms of active service. Friends, someone's volume of service to us or to the church is not a qualifier in and of itself for church leadership. Now, it's wonderful when members show their love for God and for the church by giving their time and talent for it. Wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. But just the, the, sheer, the, the mere volume of service someone gives to the church is not a qualification for church leadership. Now, we might choose someone for leadership uh, because of their leadership skills. Uh, in the workplace, their accomplishments in the secular world or their skill sets can easily lure us to believe that if they prove themselves able to lead in their department or at work, they must also be able to lead in the church. Friends, that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes churches choose in leadership men because of their spiritual gifts. Oh, or their charismatic personality, or their warmth, or their ability to relate to people, their ability to gather people around them. And the church may ignore the character traits or other qualities and other qualifications that God has described. Sometimes churches may choose in leadership men simply because they have been in a church for a long time. Friends, longevity, familiarity, even influence 
It's not a good qualification or good enough qualification for leadership. Now, it's helpful to have it. We're not saying that it's bad to have those things. But in and of themselves, they should not be the primary thing that guides someone's recommendation. Sometimes churches choose people in leadership based on equal representation of ages. We want to have people who represent all ages of our congregation. Oh, friends, can you imagine, Paul, telling Titus some of these qualifications? Fortunately, they're not in the Bible, and therefore they shouldn't be in our own selection process either. If someone has some of them, great, but they should not be on the table of what influences us for considering whether or not someone should be considered for this role. Friends, we could give probably more examples of human-based criteria for choosing men for leadership in the church. We must allow Scripture to correct our view of who qualifies to be stewards of God's church. This week in my own quiet time, I was reading through a passage in the Old Testament where in Israel's history, the, the nation split in two parts. Um, and uh, the northern kingdom in, in installed a, a new king um, by the name of Jeroboam. And he uh, did two very influential things as soon as he became king of the northern tribes of Israel. The first very influential thing was that he built two golden calves and asked the nation of Israel to start worshiping these calves and said to them, Israel, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And he did not just one, but two. It's as if Israel was repeating the story of idolatry in the book of Exodus over again. But the second major strategic influence and decision that Jeroboam did at the same time, besides erecting and establishing these, this idolatrous altar, was that he also established priesthood over the people of Israel. And he did not take those priests from the tribe of Levi as God has told them, but chose them on his own criteria. You may say, how is it that a whole nation would start living and following this idolatrous spiritual direction? Well, when you put priests over them who don't meet God's qualifications, you can do almost anything you want. Friends, who leads, who guides, who protects the people of God as God's shepherds, as God's priests, as God's stewards, as overseers, has a long-term effect in the life of the church. The leaders of the church ought to be, according to the New Testament prescription that God has given us, ought to be elders and overseers. And they're not just a, a board of executive trustees. They are shepherds of God's church. They care for the sheep. They live their lives with the sheep. They know the sheep and they carry out their responsibility of shepherding as God's stewards. If elders are God's stewards, not our stewards, then it doesn't matter if an elder meets our qualifications. The big question is, 
do they meet God's qualifications? There are two primary passages in the Bible that speak about qualifications for elders or overseers or shepherds. It's this passage that we read this morning, and it's also the passage we read earlier in the, in the service from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, we must not only understand these qualifications, but we must know how to assess them in others. How do we know if someone meets these qualifications? We want to be sure that you not only know these qualifications, but you understand them and know how to assess them in someone else's life. But as we consider this list of qualifications, here's a second point I would like for us to point out. The qualifications are not unique to elders. I wonder if you noticed that most of the qualifications that we read are so normal for the Christian life. They're not spectacular qualifications. I love how someone said, in some respects, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. With the exception of one's ability to teach and correct, these qualifications are traits that all Christians should pursue in their lives. Being above reproach, being the husband of one wife, having children that are faithful, not arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy, but instead being hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Friends, I ask you, which of these qualifications do you think that we can ignore as Christians? Which of them can you say as you go from this service, oh, I'm so glad I'm not an elder because I don't have to worry about those qualifications. I'm so glad I'm not an elder because I can, I can take it easy on these things. Friends, each and every one of these are commanded elsewhere by God in the Scripture that we should all pursue and desire to live by. Majority of these qualifications are for all of us. So when you hear, as we look, consider the rest of the sermon um, and the rest of, of this passage, don't tune out. Don't check out to say, well, this is not for me. This is only for elders. Oh, no, friends, this is for all of us. For all of us, first and foremost, in the sense that this is what we should be like, each and every one of us. It's also for all of us, and I want to speak here especially for those who are members of this congregation, uh, because in a congregational church governance, as we have here at Parkers Baptist Church, the members of the church are responsible for affirming who the elders and the shepherds of the church are. So you, the members, must know how to assess these qualities in any prospective elders. And I pray that every man in our congregation would desire to live his Christian life in such a way that should God call any of the men among us to be and serve as elders, they live the kind of lives that qualifies them for this role. And I pray that as we as a congregation will be in a future position, uh, place with the choice of selecting elders, that we would know how to consider them, how to assess them, and we would not make recommendations or assessments purely on human-based criteria. So let's go in through this criteria. We're gonna, this morning, we're just going to take two of the qualifications, 
We'll continue these list of qualifications next time I'll be preaching here, um, which will be in a few weeks. But um, I pray that the Lord helps us understand how, um, how these qualifications, what they mean, and how do we assess them. So how they mean, what they mean, and how do we assess them. An elder, here's a third point of the sermon. An elder must be above reproach. Notice this qualification is mentioned twice in our passage. It's mentioned at the head of the list in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, and then it's repeated again in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Now, what does it mean to be above reproach? Uh, the Greek word does not mean without blemish. It means without blame, without accusation. So candidates for eldership must be people who live with an unquestioned integrity or an unimpeachable character. So to be approved, I mean, to be above reproach and to, be, to, to meet this qualification does not mean sinlessness. Rather, it means that if someone is criticized in terms of their Christian life, the criticism will not stick because they live a consistently godly life. Again, no one is perfect except Christ. Being above reproach does not mean that your wife can spot a blame on you. Uh, friends, if that's what he meant, none of us could, uh, could make this list of above reproach. Instead, being above reproach is, as one preacher said, there's no obvious inconsistency or flaw that everyone agrees with and serves as a reproach to the man. Now, how do you examine if someone meets the qualification of being above reproach? We, we explained what it is. Now, let's, let's think through some questions. How do you examine this particular um, qualification? By the way, let me, let me recommend to you, if you'd like to know more about uh, questions you can consider in examining these qualifications. A wonderful book uh, was written by, uh, by a brother, Thabiti Anyabilai, um, a, a book called Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. And he goes through these qualifications and has a number of questions to help us think through that. I'll mention some of these questions in my sermon this morning and also some other ways in which we can consider examining these qualifications. But notice, first of all, that the idea of above reproach is sort of a, is, is a first in the list, and it's sort of an umbrella for everything that's following in this category of qualifications. The rest of verse 6, the qualifications of being above reproach relate to someone's leadership in the family, his relationship to his wife and children. It's amazing that what qualifies a man for eldership in the church is not his leadership skills in the business world or society, but his leadership in the home. In verse 7, uh, the above reproach is described with a list of five negatives. What he must not be, arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. Instead, above reproach includes uh, the list of positives in verse 6. Six positives. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are character traits uh, that evidence spiritual growth and consistency in someone's life. And then there's the, the, the abilities of verse 9, um, some particular skills 
a firm knowledge of the truth, an ability to instruct in sound doctrine, and the courage to rebuke those who contradict God's Word. Of course, above reproach is not limited just to this list of qualifications, but any aspect of the Christian life that God commands us in His Word would be a fair, fair comparison uh, that we could consider if someone is above reproach. Here are some questions to, to, can, to consider as you're, you think about this qualification. Consider asking a prospective elder if he feels there is anything in his life that might disqualify him as an elder. Just ask him that question in a, in a personal conversation. Oh, here's another one. If other members of the family or other co-workers or friends found out that a person is considered for eldership, would they be surprised negatively? Would they be surprised negatively? Would members in the church object uh, to someone being considered for eldership? Would someone bring a reproach to a particular can person's candidacy, if you will? Oh, by the way, members, if you... If you, if you will plan ever to, to vote no to, for a, or towards a particular candidate, we will want to encourage you to uh, tell us privately ahead of time so that we may consider the reproach you might have against a candidate and know that uh, if it is a biblical reproach and meets the, uh, meets the biblical qualifications, we might have to, to, to pull away the recommendations so that the person will not be put on for a vote. We want the members to, to be involved in that process of being engaged in, in examining if a member is above reproach. Does a person live in such a way that should an accusation be brought out, people would be shocked? Or will they say, I'm not surprised? These are some questions to help us consider if a person lives above reproach. To be above reproach, again, does not mean perfection. It means someone's character. Um, in terms of godliness and consistency uh, in such a way that his character is not blameworthy. Number four in our sermon today, and it will be our second qualification, an elder must be a one-woman man. Let's look at verse six again. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. It appears not only here in Titus, it appears also in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 2. This qualification of being the husband of one wife is also mentioned as a qualification for deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, let the deacons uh, each be the husband of one wife. Now, friends, this qualification is very, very difficult to interpret. We could sit here a long while and go back and forth. I'd like to um, give a summary of various views of how this phrase has been interpreted and to think through how we can apply it here. The phrase in the, in the Greek language is literally three words. One woman man. That's a phrase. One woman man. But what did Paul mean by this qualification? There are at least a few views on it. Some uh, this is very unlikely, but some think that this qualification rules out from eldership anyone who's not married. It must be the husband of one wife. So someone who's not married is not the husband of one wife. Well, friends, if we allow this reasoning 
and apply it to the next qualification, it means that an elder must also not only be the husband of one wife, but be married with children, not just one children, child, but two children, because the next one speaks about he must have children uh, who are in a certain way. So if we think that this qualification means he must be at least married, we, might also we may also have to say he must at least have two children. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. That's not the point of this one-woman-man expression. Something, this qualification, is given to rule out from eldership those who practice polygamy. It's true that in the ancient times, polygamy was more common. But we don't see very much evidence in the New Testament that polygamy was a threat to the church. In other words, Christians figured out that polygamy was not supposed to be practiced. Rather, other sexual sins were way more commonly condoned and spoken against than polygamy. We have other sins like, like adultery, fornication, and other kinds of sexual immorality. Thus, it's less likely that polygamy was a threat, a big issue for the church. Something that this qualification rules out from eldership those who marry more than once. So if someone's wife has died and remarries, he would have more than one wife in his lifetime. I've heard of pastors who took this interpretation, and one in particular whose wife died, and he remarried, and because he felt this conviction of how he interpreted this passage in this way, on his own conviction, he stepped down from shepherding God's flock. He acted upon his conviction. But is this passage, is this phrase referring to remarriage after uh, being widowed? In Romans chapter 7, Paul makes it clear that the death of a spouse frees the widower to remarry. Paul says in Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, and if she, re she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Thus, Paul makes it very clear that death dissolves the law of marriage so that remarriage uh, is appropriate and would therefore also not be necessarily a disqualifier for eldership. That's one interpretation. Something that this qualification rules out from eldership those who remarry after being divorced. Now, this is a much more complicated situation. Based on Romans 7, the verses we just read earlier, and based on 1 Corinthians 7, 39, some conclude that a marital bond is dissolved only by death, and remarriage is allowed only in the case of a spouse dying. Others allow two more situations or two more conditions for divorce and remarriage, namely the divorce and remarriage after uh, one of the spouses or the other spouse committed adultery or after the other spouse abandoned the believing spouse because the other spouse was an unbeliever. Both of these exceptions are mentioned in Matthew 19, verse 9, and 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. In other words, if divorce was caused by um, adultery in the other spouse, 
or by the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse, uh, then remarriage is also acceptable. And on that condition, um, remarriage would not be an adultery and would not disqualify someone from serving as an elder. Others are not convinced that Paul is speaking here in this phrase, a one-woman man, about someone's marital status, but about someone's marital fidelity and sexual purity. So that whether a person is married or not, his commitment to live pure in his relationship with women is the key driving force. The phrase, a one-woman man, has a parallel for women in 1 Timothy 5, 9, where it speaks to the church about which women should be included on the list of widows. Paul speaks there about a one-man woman. One of the qualifications for a church's list of widows, Paul says to Timothy there, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Again, the expression is literally a one-man woman. Now, it's less likely that the expression refers here to her marital status. Instead, it speaks to the woman's commitment to marriage and sexual purity while her husband was alive. Was she a woman committed to her husband? Was she a godly woman in her marriage? Did she show godliness towards her family while she was married? If not, you should not put her on a list of widows. Well, imagine delivering that news to someone who was in need and over the age of 60, but her life as a believer did not show that commitment of being a one-man woman. Wow. A similar situation seems to be the case for elders. In a similar way, we can understand the phrase in Titus to refer not simply to one's marital status, but to their commitment to, to one woman and to, their, to sexual purity. Now, if we understand the phrase one woman man to refer not to marital status, but to marital fidelity and sexual purity, does this mean that we can receive as elders men who are divorced? Not necessarily. Someone's divorce may be because they have not been committed to their wives and have not cared well for them. Did the divorce happen before or after conversion? Did it happen recently? Did it happen a very long time? The situation is much more complex. The issue is not simply a past divorce, but a present commitment to one's wife. I love how D.A. Carson speaks about this when he says, where divorce disqualifies a person from ministry is bound up with a category of being above reproach. It's a credibility issue. Divorce is not the ultimate sin, nor is it the unforgivable sin, yet it may disqualify a person for ministry precisely because it destroys so much of a person's credibility in terms of managing his own household well. Someone can be married only to one wife and yet not be a one-woman man because he's flirting with other women, or he's living in adultery, or because he's living the kind of life where his commitment to his wife is lacking. So if the phrase, one woman man, 
is not primarily about one's marital status, but about one's marital fidelity and sexual purity, here are some questions we can ask as we consider examining and assessing someone's fitness for it. Whether single or married, how does a man battle lust? Consider that question. Whether single or married. Here's another one. It applies to both married or single men. Is a man, is a particular candidate, is he enslaved to pornography? If a person is still battling the sin of pornography, it is best not to place him in the role of eldership. How can he be an example to others of sexual purity and of self-control if he's still struggling with it? Now, dear friends, if any of you this morning are struggling with this particular sin, I encourage you to confess it, turn away from it, and be committed to fight against it. And ask for help. Ask for help from other Christians. We love helping Christians who come and, and, and share about this particular sin and, and give them resources and find ways of helping them battle through this sin. It is a sin that the Lord can forgive you of. It is a sin that the Lord can give you strength to, to renounce and to escape and to look at it as a past battle. And you can stand as a testimony of God's grace in your life. We should ask a prospective elder if he has ever broken the marriage covenant through an adulterous relationship. Part of examining if a prospective elder is a one-woman man is to ask him if his wife is certain and convinced that her husband is a one-woman man. Let me ask some more clarifying questions to that. Is the husband committed more to his job or to his hobbies or to his friends than to her? And let me ask you even more. Is her husband committed more to the church than to his wife? I love how Thabiti Anabule speaks about this phrase of a one-woman man. He says, being a one-woman man means, in part, maintaining a family atmosphere that disallows other people or things from displacing the marriage as the center of the family. A potential elder prizes his wife even above the other precious people in the home and in earthly relationships directs his affections first and foremost toward his wife. Well, some may say, Pastor, this is a lot of private information. How would the members know all this stuff? Well, this is where we can say two things. Not everybody may know about all these things. But someone in the congregation might know. And we would like to ask them to to share. That's the whole idea of, of evolving the whole congregation, the process of, of selecting and approving elders. But second of all, even if someone in the congregation may not know, the job of the elders is to do a thorough examination and in privacy ask the hard and difficult questions. Ask the rigorous questions. Ask the uncomfortable questions. So that, I want to give you a great encouragement, a church 
should never proceed with voting on elders without the approval of the existing elders. Because the job of the existing elders is to be sure that they do a very rigorous examination and very, if you will, if you have private examination of what's going on in someone's life to see if they're fit for this role. This is not a matter of, of control. This is a matter of a church wanting to take seriously the examination of the new elders by the current elders. Well, friends, it's a matter of realizing that God has spoken in His Word about what qualifies men to be God's stewards of the church. If these elders were just our stewards, then we may be entitled to come up with our list of qualifications. But if, if elders and shepherds are God's stewards, we don't have the right to dispense, to tweak God's list of qualifications. The bottom line is this. An elder's godliness is first and foremost, above all, is proved and tested. His above reproach category is first tested and seen in his marital relationship to his wife, if he's married, and if he's single, in how he treats other women with godliness and purity. Men, if you have failed in this area, I pray that the Lord would speak to every one of us and help us to be the kind of people who, who repent and turn away from various shortfalls, shortcomings of how we may have not cared for our wives way, well in a godly way. I pray that the Lord would encourage us in this, in this dimension and that we would seek to be men who, who live in a godly way with our wives first and foremost and then with our children as well. This is the the first two qualifications that we see in this list. We have considered four points today. We have considered that God determines the qualifications for elders. We have considered that the qualifications for elders are not unique to elders, but every Christian should desire to pursue them, that an elder must be above reproach, and that an elder must be a one-woman man. You may wonder why is it that, that, that the this, this situation about an elder and his wife is so important. Friends, because marriage is not just a social institution. Marriage for Christians is also a picture of the union between Christ and the church. And when we live our lives as married couples, and we, we live in light of that image of Christ and the church and their relationship we have an opportunity to display the gospel well. When we fail in that, we actually hinder the gospel. We give a wrong message of what the gospel is about. And in particular, this is for all members of the church, but in particular, it's for the leaders of the church so they can lead the families of the church to display this kind of relationship between a husband and a wife. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that God desires for all to be saved. God desires for, for those who rebelled against Him to be brought back to Him and not just to be reconciled with Him, but God promised that those who repent and trust in Christ, those who forsake their sins and seek Jesus, they're not just going to be reconciled with God, they're going to be the bride of Christ. Friends, realize it's a great, great privilege 
to be the, the bride of Christ. If you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you to turn to God, forsake your sin, and put your faith, your trust fully on the sacrifice of Christ. And for the rest of us who have responded to that, oh friends, we are given this charge to portray the gospel in our family relationships. And especially those who are called to lead the church must be examples in this way. I want to leave you with one final quote by Thabitha Nabile. The Lord designed the church in such a way that it requires godly leaders. The sheep needs shepherd, need shepherds who would care for them practically and be an example for the flock, as 1 Peter says. Elders are pastors. Elders are shepherds. They exercise oversight over the church, but do so not by domineering over those in their charge, but by being examples to the flock. And the first area of being examples to the flock is in the way an elder treats his wife. Let's pray that God would bless us with elders who can be examples in this area. Elders who live up to God's qualifications and shepherd us well. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, we praise you that you are a God who cares well for your people. You care well, so well that you know that our wandering hearts often have a tendency to wander off, wander away. And you have provided a means to protect, to care, to guide, to bring back our wandering hearts. And that means is shepherds who would seek the sheep, who would care for the sheep, who would protect the sheep, who would instruct the sheep, who would nourish the sheep. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you for your instruction about who such shepherds should be. We pray that you would help us understand these qualifications and choose them and prefer them over our desires, over our qualifications. And help this congregation to grow in godliness as we consider the plurality of elders and shepherds. We pray this for the sake of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.